You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. And open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew 16 this morning. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. This is God's word. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it's evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Well, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? But where are the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray you'd help us now. We want to understand and discern rightly your word. And so we'll need your help for that. We need eyes to see it and and ears to hear it and minds to understand it, but we need your spirit to give us hearts to believe it and to embrace it and to put into practice the things that we learn. So I pray that your spirit would work now, that, that what we do right now would be more than a rhetorical intellectual exercise, that it would be actually your people receiving from you with open minds and hearts, your word. And I pray that you do that for our good and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are several weeks into a sermon series entitled Near and Far, Drawing Close to Jesus, a series that takes us from the end of Matthew 13 and ultimately, Lord willing, through the end of Matthew 18. Here in Matthew 16, we see Jesus interacting with both the people that seem to be farthest from him, ironically the religious leaders, and the people that are closest to him, his disciples. So he's interacting with both of these groups here in these two paragraphs, and it's the last sentence at the end in verse 12 that clarifies how we should understand these two conversations. Look again at verse 12. It says, then they understood. He didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The take-home message in these two paragraphs is to beware. Beware. Or as he says in verse 6, to watch 
out. These verses are warning. Have you ever considered the difficulties and problems that we bring into our lives by worrying about or being too wary of the wrong things? By watching out or watching too carefully or looking out for things that we really probably shouldn't waste our time on or maybe should really just ignore. I have a daughter. She's not in this room right now. I have a daughter who is very vigilant and watchful about a growing and evolving number of things. And they're always close to her attention, and it's usually at bedtime. Often, they track some book she's recently read or movie she's recently watched. And she has many concerns of which she is very wary and very watchful. So we've had all sorts of things. It grows and evolves and changes. We used to always hear, is the power going to go out tonight? I don't think so. There's no storm. It should be okay. Um, is the ceiling going to fall on me? Have you ever heard of someone who had the ceiling fall in while they sleep? No. Then it's probably not going to do that. Right? Um, lately, it's, um, so nothing bad's going to happen to me? If you get out of bed again, something bad is going to happen to you. <laughs> Stay in your bed. Or a while back, for a while, we had, uh, am I going to become a slave? Well, we all kind of work for your mom here, but I think slave is a little bit of a stretch, you know? <laughs> a while back, the kids and I watched this cheesy Jackie Chan movie. Um, uh, where he has to deal with these, these Russian mobsters who break into his house and steal something. They are the lamest, least scary or dangerous Russian mobsters you've ever seen. I'm sure you've seen lots of Russian mobsters, but they're like a joke. It's a farce in the movie, right? So later that night, I'm putting her to bed, and she's going through her questions, and she says to me, I'm worried someone's going to break into our house tonight. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? Like, someone's going to break in. She goes, I'm concerned someone's going to break in and try to steal me. I said, we live in a really safe neighborhood. I don't think that that's going to happen. She said, are you sure? I'm just, I'm really worried that someone's going to break into my room and try to take me. And I said, do, do you mean like Russians? She's like, yes. I said, I, I cannot tell you how shocked I will be if the Russians bust through your window tonight and steal you. I will be very, very surprised. But hey, we can, we can all be hyper-vigilant, watching out for things that we really probably don't need to worry about. It's not just kids. I mean, it's adults too, right? We can be obsessively worried about uh, our health and constantly on the lookout, something bad might happen to me. Or our finances, something could happen and we could lose everything and we can be hyper-vigilant and worried about that. Or, or our relationships, always think about how many of us sometimes uh, are just constantly looking for, uh, are, they, are, they, are they criticizing me? What do they think? What did that look on her face mean? I think, and we can be hyper-vigilant maybe too wary and too watchful about things we probably shouldn't waste too much time or energy or emotion on. But you know, the opposite is also true. 
There are things we ought to be more wary of, more watchful of, pay more careful attention to. And that's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples in Matthew 16. He's he's putting a real danger, a real concern on their radar and ours, saying, hey, you've got to watch out for this. You've got to be wary of this. And it's a good thing he does because I think he knows that most of us aren't watching too carefully for the thing he's bringing to their attention. He wants them to watch out for a certain kind of teaching. A certain kind of teaching. You know, if you were to list your top 10 fears and worries for 2021, I would be willing to wager we could all do that and none of us would have, I'm concerned I'm going to fall into false teaching this year, right? Probably nobody in here is really concerned about that. But Jesus and the New Testament apostolic authors are frequently concerned that we will fall, followers of Jesus will be led astray by a kind of false teaching. We underestimate it, though. And here's why. Because none of us think that we're susceptible to it. Other people are. But you've never believed false teaching, have you? Have you ever embraced false teaching? Have you? Well, no. No, we think. Of course not. Here's why I think that is. I suppose I came in here to teach you this morning not about the Bible, not about God, but about health and fitness. And I said, look, here's what you need to know. You need to get off the couch, you need to get some exercise, and you need to eat well. Now, you may or may not take those things up, but you know it's true. And if you didn't do it, you would know you were making a mistake, right? As you reach for that seventh piece of pizza, you'd be like, I shouldn't be doing this, right? (laughs) I know I shouldn't. You'd know you were making that mistake. Or if I came in here to talk about finances this morning and I said, look, you got to have a budget and you got to plan for the future and you have to defer some gratification. You can't buy everything you want right now. You may not follow those things. We all don't do those things perfectly, but we know we're making that mistake. I really shouldn't buy this, but I'm going to, right? We could go on and on. We could talk about relationships. I could say, hey, listen, you got to invest in the people you care about most. you got to forgive people that have offended you. You can't be so angry all of the time. you got to serve other people and look out for their interest. And, and you would know those things are true. And even though we wouldn't always do them, we would know we were making that mistake when we made it. But that's not what happens with false teaching. None of us has ever heard false teaching going, well, that's, I know that's not true, but um, I think I'm going to believe it anyway. It's always a mistake that's made unintentionally. We don't go into it with our eyes open. We're really deceived. It's a mistake we don't know that we're making. See, the kind of false teaching that could capture us is the kind of false teaching that sounds right and that we want to be right. False teachers don't hard sell difficult things. They sell the things you already want to buy. If we brought in here this morning a parade of of apologists for other religions, we brought a a Muslim apologist up here to explain the faith, you wouldn't fall for it. You wouldn't. Or if we brought a a Mormon up here or a Scientologist, you wouldn't listen to the arguments and go, oh, they make some really good points. None of those are good news religions. You don't want them to be true. You wouldn't fall for it. 
But, but if we brought up here, and, and I think most of us hopefully are more watchful of this, but, but if we brought up here a slick TV preacher who tells fantastic stories, is super funny, he opens the Bible, he talks about Jesus, and he tells us Jesus mostly wants you to be rich, you, will be, well, you might be tempted, right? Well, he's got the Bible. He's talking about Jesus, that's our guy, and I want to be rich. Now, the kind of teaching we would be likely to fall for, deceive ourselves with, is things that, that sound kind of right and that we want to be true. And that brings us back here to Matthew 16. Jesus is warning his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You say, that's a long time ago. I don't know any Pharisees and Sadducees. If they come to my door, I won't open it. But that's not, don't stop so quick, right? There's something for us here. Because the, the false teaching Jesus is concerned about is a false teaching we're susceptible to think about too. What do they teach that he's so concerned about? Well, well, both of these groups are important Jewish groups. They valued the Bible, generally speaking. They uh, believed lots of things that were true, many things that you and I would agree are true even today. So Jesus isn't denouncing everything they believe is false. But the fact that they come to him together is an important clue about the problem Jesus is concerned about. Because normally the Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get along very well at all. The Pharisees were a pretty strict group. They believed the Old Testament law. They believed a whole bunch of teachings, oral traditions that were put alongside the law. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, talking about the washing of hands with Jesus' disciples. And the Pharisees were all over the country. They were very kind of separatist. Now, that's what the name means, right? They wanted to not defile themselves either with, with people that weren't following the law like they should or that were really sinful or poor or common. Uh, they also wanted to keep themselves away from the rich aristocracy, the people that were too contaminated by worldly Greek ideas. The Pharisees were, well, their characteristic sin was self-righteousness. You remember the story Jesus tells about the Pharisee that goes to the temple to pray? and lifts his hands and looks at heaven and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner over there, right? Self-righteousness is the characteristic pharisaical sin. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the Greek-speaking aristocracy. They were centered around Jerusalem, and they were centered around the temple. They were the rich. They were the most accommodating with the worldly ideas of the day, the ideas associated with Greece. They deny, this is massive, they denied the resurrection of the dead. In other words, when you die, you're done. Now that was foundational in Jewish teaching. It's foundational, of course, in Christian teaching. It's foundational to the whole message of the Bible. They denied it. There's no resurrection. And so the, character, so the conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees was common. Uh, several decades after this, you may remember the Apostle Paul in Acts 23 will get brought before the religious leaders, and he looks around at the room and he sees a bunch of Pharisees. And he sees a bunch of Sadducees, and they're all mad at him. And Paul says, you know, I'm a Pharisee, and the reason I'm here today is because of my belief in the resurrection from the dead. And the Pharisees and Sadducees just start arguing with each other and take, take some of the heat off Paul, right? He knows, the, he knows the conflict. He knows the division. But here these two groups come together. And what brings them together, both the Pharisees, whose, whose characteristic sin is self-righteousness, and the Sadducees, whose characteristic sin is self-indulgence, 
They're rich. They're powerful. They don't believe there's going to be a judgment they have to answer to after they die, so they do whatever they want. Those two groups come together, and what unites these typical enemies is Jesus is their common enemy. And they got a problem with him. And so they come to Jesus, and it says they come to test him. Or that word is sometimes translated tempt. You know who the first person is to test Jesus in Matthew's gospel? Satan back in chapter 4. Satan comes to test Jesus. And you get the sense, however subtle Matthew may be here, that the Pharisees and Sadducees are continuing that same work here in chapter 16. And they ask for him to show them a sign. Give us proof. Give us proof that you are who you say you are and can do what you say you do. But listen, their request is disgenuous. Is disgenuous. They, they don't want to know if Jesus is Messiah. They want to find a way to prove he's not. That's their aim here. They've already decided, back in Matthew 12 we read, they've already decided Jesus needs to be destroyed. He's got to be destroyed. It's a clever game they think they're playing. See, if Jesus can't perform the sign they ask for, a sign from heaven, something in the sky, in the clouds, something impressive and big and powerful, if he can't perform it, they'll say, he can't be the Messiah, he can't even do it. And if he does perform a sign... I don't know what they're going to say, but it'll probably be something like they say when he cast out demons. You remember what he said then? Well, he just does that in the power of Satan. That's how he does it. To which Jesus says, loosely translated, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? <laughs> Why would Satan cast out Satan? Right? They'll come up with something then, some other excuse, some kind of way to explain it away. They're going to try to trip him up. They'll do it again in a few chapters in chapter 22. To trip him up, they'll say, Jesus, should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, they think it's really clever. Because if he says, yes, we should, they'll turn to the Jews and say, he's a Roman sympathizer. He thinks we should pay taxes to Caesar. But if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't, they'll go to the Romans and say, he's a rebel. He's trying to start something. They think they're clever. You remember what Jesus says. You give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's, right? Shortly after that, the, uh, they all decide, yeah, we're not going to ask him any more questions. <laughs> the core belief that brings the Pharisees and Sadducees together here is that Jesus cannot be, must not be, they don't want him to be the Messiah. And so these two historically enemies come together to confront Jesus. And they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Something big, something impressive. A number of years ago, we were on vacation down uh, in uh, Florida at this resort that our family goes to. And uh, our condo that year happened to back right up to the fairway of a golf course, which was really handy. You got this big, finely manicured yard, and the kids would run around after twilight or, you know, when it was stopping. Sometimes we'd go out there and hit golf balls. And so one day after dinner, there's no more golfers coming through. And my brother and I are out there hitting a pitching wedge up and down the fairway and this sort of thing. And a couple a couple condos down, a couple people come out with yard chairs, and they set up their yard chairs facing us while we're hitting golf balls. I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then a little while later, this kind of this big horseshoe-shaped thing of condos, 12, 15, 20 condos, we see some more people come out over there. And pretty soon there are dozens of people in yard chairs surrounding the end of this fairway and going around over here facing us. I was like, they 
they can't be out here to watch us hit golf balls. There's just no way. And uh, so we keep hitting. Well, a little while later, we're out there chipping our golf balls around, and all of a sudden we see in the sky off to the east something going up in the sky. It's the space shuttle. Cape Canaveral or Cape Kennedy, I think they call it now, is about 50, 70 miles to the east. And they all knew the space shuttle was launching, and they were all out there not to watch me hit my pitching wedge, as fun as that is. They were there to see a show, right? They are there to watch this space shuttle, even that distance away, you could see it going up. Well, these Pharisees and Sadducees bring out their lawn chairs, in effect, and demand a sign. Show us something. Show us something that will prove who you are. But it's not entertainment they're after. In fact, lawn chair isn't the right piece of furniture to think about this. What they're really bringing out is a judge's bench. What they're really bringing out is the judge's bench. From their perspective, Jesus is on trial. They are presiding over the court. He has to prove himself to them, and they sit in judgment over him. It is difficult to imagine a more backwards and perverse understanding of our relationship to Jesus than that. That the creator and sustainer of the universe sits under our judgment and our evaluation and must subject himself to our opinion and our understanding. Jesus himself sits in judgment over the world and over every human heart. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, yet they think Jesus must answer to them. He must prove himself to them. He must meet their demands. And it's right here, I think, where we see the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is warning his disciples and and us about. We might want to say the false teaching is that Jesus is not the Messiah. But I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. That's true. But I don't think he's worried that the disciples will not believe that. They're not likely to be persuaded by that argument. No, the error is is more subtle than that. Here's the false teaching that's so subtle and dangerous. The Pharisees and Sadducees believe that Jesus must be what we demand or expect him to be. Jesus must do or be what we expect and we demand that he be. Jesus, I will follow you, but it's going to have to go like this. Jesus, I will worship you, but then you're going to need to be this way. Jesus, if I'm going to continue to be your disciple, you'd better do this. And we begin to put ourselves in judgment over Jesus to demand from him that he be what we expect him to be and that he do what we insist that he do. We evaluating and judging him. Hey, listen, here's the big thing this morning. Jesus does not submit to our expectations. He feels no pressure to be what we demand that he be. He feels no temptation to change his plans to do what we want him to do. Jesus does not submit to our expectations. There's a story. Turn back a few chapters to Matthew 11. Just a few pages back. Matthew 11. Jesus is talking about this generation of people. Look at how he describes them. Chapter 11 
and verse 16. He says, but to what, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, hey, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, well, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus says back in chapter 11, right there, he says, you're like children. When people don't do what you expect, like, hey, we sang a happy song and you didn't dance. We sang the happy song. You're supposed to dance. Or we played the sad song, but you didn't mourn. Didn't you hear us playing the sad song? You're supposed to. Jesus, Jesus does not submit to our expectations. But that generation and, and this generation, we expect Jesus to do what we want and think he should do. He's got to conform to our expectations. He's got to do what we demand. That demanding spirit is not unique to Jesus' day. Ah, the, the shape changes. It looks a little different. But we know what that's like. It looks like frustration because Jesus isn't, isn't taking our lives in the direction we thought they were going to go. And we're frustrated. This isn't the life I picked. Jesus, didn't I tell you about the life I wanted? It looks like anger because I've got problems and Jesus just isn't fixing them. Things going on in my life, maybe people in my life. Jesus, why aren't you fixing this? It looks like disobedience because Jesus is asking more from us in some area than we want to give. Jesus, I never was planning on letting you have that. Not that thing, not that part of my life. It might look like embarrassment because there's something about Jesus or his teachings that just doesn't fit real well in a modern and politically correct culture. And we're, Jesus, why did you have to say that? Why did you have to teach that? Or it looks like discouragement because we just haven't made the spiritual progress that we think we should have. Some people find their faith faltering. Some find their spiritual joy diminished. Some people walk away from Jesus altogether. Jesus, you have not met my expectations. I thought it was going to be different than this. It should be different than this. But Jesus, he doesn't submit to our demands or expectations. Why not? Why doesn't he do that? You and I tend to try to do that with the people in our lives. Some of us more so than others. Some of us are people pleasers, and if there's any way we can do what makes you happy, we'll do it. Why doesn't Jesus do it? Two main reasons. Here's the first one. Because he's God. Because he's God. I'm reading right now through the book of Job. Job, as you know, has a rough road. He has incredible blessings, and he loses them all in the same day. He loses his family. He loses his possessions and his wealth. He loses his health. His life has gone from wonderful to terrible, not what he expected, not what he planned for. And his friends come to, to encourage him that looks a lot more like trying to figure out what's going on here. Job, what'd you do? What'd you say? 
what's the problem here? How can we figure this out? And we get to the end. And do you remember the part where God explains to him why he did all of this? You don't remember that part because that's not how the book ends. Instead, the book ends with, uh, near the end of the book, God comes to Job and he says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who's the dummy who's trying to tell me what's going on? He says, brace for action like a man. God says, I'll question you and you answer me. And then he spends five chapters asking Job questions. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know where the rain and the snow come from? Do you know the pillars on which the earth stands? Do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know? And after five chapters, what's the conclusion? Job doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. And he gets to the end and he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke too soon. Now I know you are God. When it comes to who God is and what he should do, except for what the Bible tells us, we don't know anything. This problem doesn't go away. It's not just a Matthew 16, 1 through 12 problem. In fact, in the very next section, we'll look at it next week. Very important passage in Matthew. Jesus will take his disciples and he'll ask them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Isaiah, some say one of the prophets. And Jesus says famously, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's this amazing, it's like the highlight of the book other than the resurrection of Jesus. It's the highlight of the book. Yes, that's who he is. And Jesus immediately begins to tell them what that looks like. So listen, he says, the Son of Man, Jesus saying me, is going to go to Jerusalem and is going to be killed and rise again three days later. And you remember what Peter does? Who's just made this amazing confession. He pulls him aside and it says he rebukes him. Jesus, stop, stop, stop saying that. That is not what's going to happen. That's not what it means to be Messiah. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter has expectations. The disciples have expectations. The Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem, throw out the Romans, throw out the wicked religious leaders, and establish his authority. And Jesus says, no, the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus doesn't submit to our demands and expectations, first of all, because he's God. Second of all, because he's good. Because he's good. When we place demands on Jesus, when we try to compel Jesus to submit to our expectations, this is what we're saying. We're saying the Jesus who really is isn't cutting it. The Jesus who is acting in this way in my life, he's not cutting it. But there's another Jesus, the Jesus that does what I want and expect him to do. And that Jesus is better. I don't want the Jesus that really is. I want my Jesus that does what I want and expect him to do. But listen, my Jesus isn't better than the real Jesus. Your preferred Jesus is not better than the real one. 
Think about the Messiah we just saw Peter wanting. Peter says, no, I don't, we don't want a Messiah that dies. That's not better. We want a Messiah that goes to the cross and dies on our behalf. It doesn't just set up an earthly kingdom, but that bears the sin of the world in his own body and blood so that we can be in his eternal kingdom forever. I get why Peter didn't want a Messiah that dies, doesn't die, but a Messiah that doesn't die is not better. Jesus says back in our passage in Matthew 16, I'm not going to give you a sign from heaven. I'm going to give you one sign. One sign. The sign of Jonah. Jesus says that in Matthew 12, too, and he explains what it is there. Just like Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. It's one thing you need to see and know. Me, crucified and risen again. That's the only sign you need. What we need to see, what we need to know is that Jesus is God and that Jesus is good. He won't submit to our expectations. He won't give in to the pressure of the demands we might try to place on him because he's God and because he's good. So let me ask you as we finish this morning, what demands are you making of God? What expectations do you insist on from him? How would we know? Let me ask you a few questions. Where does following Jesus just feel too costly for you? Think of the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus until he finds out it's going to cost him all his money. Yeah. He wants a Messiah that doesn't demand everything. Hey, we'd prefer that too. Where does following Jesus just seem too costly to? Maybe they're in that place right there is where some of your demands and expectations are being forced on Jesus. What command of Jesus does your heart just revolt against? Think about it. This happened. We'll see it again in a couple chapters. We saw it back in the Lord's Prayer. Think of the command Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you forgive them. But some of us have things in our past like, I am not, not forgiving. It's too big an ask, Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Could be any number of things, but what command of Jesus does your heart just revolt against? Jesus, I'm not going to live in sexual purity. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. That's too much to ask. I'm not giving that up. Here's another question you might ask. Is there some place where you find yourself ashamed of Jesus or his teachings? Jesus, why did you have to say that? Why did you have to teach that? Maybe you're making demands or, or placing expectations on Jesus. Maybe one of the ways we'd see that is, what fear would following Jesus wholeheartedly expose you to? I'd go hard after Jesus. I'd give him my whole life and heart, except I'm afraid that, you know, the old joke, and it was not really a joke, but the old joke was always, I'm afraid he'll send me to Africa as a missionary. But what is it? What fears, if I gave myself wholly to Jesus, I'm scared that I would have to do this or lose that. Here's one more question. What is Jesus doing in your life right now that you're just not happy about? 
Jesus, I can't be a happy Christian. I can't be joyful and follow you wholeheartedly because I've got some real disappointments and struggles. Jesus, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about any of those things, but he's not going to submit to our expectations or demands as though we were God or our plan was better than his. So what are you demanding from him right now? Look, it probably doesn't look like a fist shaking at heaven saying, God, you got to do this. If you don't, it probably won't look like that. Maybe. Probably not. It'll probably look like withdrawal. It will look like distraction. It will look like disinterest with spiritual things. It's not a shaking of fist at heaven. It's just, maybe I'll look for what I'm looking for somewhere else. That's why Jesus calls in verse 4. He says, this is an evil and adulterous generation. It's not that they don't want a Messiah. They just want the Messiah they've been looking for. They want a fantasy Messiah that accomplishes what they think a Messiah ought to do so that they can have what they think they want and need to have. Jesus' disciples have always struggled with this. This is an ongoing issue. In verse 6, the second paragraph here, we see that Jesus warns them, hey, you know, beware of the leaven, and they immediately start thinking about bread. Well, we didn't bring any bread. Why didn't we bring any bread? On and on and on about bread, and finally Jesus is like, what's up with the bread? Weren't you there when I fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Weren't you there when I fed 4,000 people with just a little bit of food? The problem is not bread. They're always worried about material things. The problem is material concern. Jesus, that's not the problem. It's spiritual concerns. It's kingdom of God concerns that you should be worried and concerned about. So let me ask you again. What are you demanding from Jesus? Where does he fail to meet your expectations? You'll find it nestled in. You'll find that thing nestled in near your frustrations near your discouragements, near your disappointments, near your anger, near your discontentment. That's where you'll find the thing that you've been demanding from Jesus. And the thing that you have to do with that, with all of those things, is bring them to the cross. I don't mean that as some kind of spiritual-sounding platitude. I mean that we have to recalibrate all of our frustrations and all of our disappointments and all of our angers and all of our discontentment in light of the cross, in light of that immistakable evidence that Jesus is God and that Jesus is good. If the cross is before us, we won't ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing? Why isn't Jesus good? because we will see it constantly in the cross. Everything God is doing in your life, if you are his child, is good. I don't mean easy. I don't mean it won't be difficult and hard. I don't mean that you won't face some disappointments and struggles. But if you are his child, everything he's doing in your life is for your good. And he is accomplishing things through the difficult and hard things that cannot be accomplished any other way. As you look at your life, the greatest times of growth have not been the easiest times, but the hardest ones. The challenge we face is 
is to not force or try to force Jesus to submit to our expectations, but to ask him to help us submit our hearts to his. When we submit our expectations to Jesus, we will find him and his plan better than we ever thought possible. Father, I pray that you would help us. This temptation is real for us every day. We live in a world marked by sin, struggle, suffering, and death. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not the way we would want them to be. And it is very easy for us to expect from you, to demand from you, to insist from you that you do and that you be what we want you to do and we want you to be. Father, I pray you'd forgive us of this foolishness and this idolatry. Our version of you is not better than the real you. Our plan is not better than your plan. We do not sit in judgment over you. You are the God and judge of the universe. And yet, you love us. Even in our difficulties, you are accomplishing good. So give us faith. Give us perseverance. Give us eyes to see, not to suppose we will understand everything you're doing, but that we will see your grace and goodness and power in the cross and that it will strengthen us and reassure us and, and, and give us fuel to continue in faith and obedience and love. Father, we don't want to be, Springview Community Church does not want to be a church where we try to make God do what we want him to do. We want to be a church that trusts you and depends on you and receives all things from your hand as good. Lord, I pray we would glorify you in this way, and I pray that we would also in that find great joy. Oh, Lord, I pray you would make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me encourage you to take some time to to share in fellowship with one another. I'll send you out with these words of benediction. Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God bless you. Have a great week.